The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, uh, I have a brother, um, two years older than me, and his kids, uh, we, we did what brothers do. Do you know what brothers do? They fight. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And for us, it was usually involving video games. Uh, My brother was really into video games. I was not really into video games, kind of. I was never any good at video games. And so it's probably why I gave them up early in life. But that's a a lot of what we would fight over. Every, every once in a while, while playing video games, and by the way, we are 80s children, me, my brother and I, and so we're talking none of the Switch stuff with all those buttons. We're talking two-button OG 8-bit Nintendo, okay, with A and, and B, none of that fancy stuff, the cartridges you had to blow in, okay? And, uh, but every once in a while, while playing video games, um, my brother was far superior as a gamer, but every once in a while, I'd win, and nothing would infuriate my brother more than beating him in the fourth quarter of Tecmo Bowl, okay? I mean, it would just, it would set him off. And so, I mean, he would, he was the guy, not to throw my brother on the bus, but I'm going to throw him under the bus. He would, he would throw the controllers at the TV. Um, he would, I mean, they'd break, have to buy a new one. It was always kind of funny because they were hit, it was his. So I was like, dude, like, you're just, you're destroying your own things. Um, he was the guy that invented the move where you get up in a puff and you hit the power button and you walk out in the middle of the game because you're losing that. Like he was, he was good at, at that. And when, but when he would do that, it would drive me crazy, right? And we'd get into it. You know, we'd, we'd fight. I can remember one, um, one afternoon in, in my parents' basement where, I, I don't know if this was related to video games or not, but one afternoon in my parents' basement, my brother's sitting in dad's chair, because dad has a chair, and I'm on this big brown corduroy, like L-shaped couch, where the armrests on the side are the same height as the back, you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? This is, again, it's the 80s. And so um, my brother said something, I can't remember what it was, you know, it's like, I'm going to beat you in Tecmo Bowl or something, I don't know what it was, and, and it set me off. And the next thing that happened, I don't know if this is an embellishment in my memory, or if this is really how it happened, but this is, let's just say this is how it happened, Right? I stood up on the top of that armrest, okay? And my brother, he's, he's over there in dad's chair, and I did a macho man, Randy Savage, flying elbow drop off the top rope onto my brother, and, and we got into it. We fought, okay? That's what, it's what brothers do. It's what brothers have always done, all the way back to the first brothers, Cain and Abel, right? In Genesis 4, it's biblical, um, but it's biblical, <laughs> Because of our sinfulness, right? And you have to understand something about this dueling nature of brothers to understand the Old Testament book of Obadiah. All right, we're going to be looking at Obadiah this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles there. Uh, no shame if you've got to use the table of contents this morning. Obadiah is the smallest book in the Old Testament. Um, it's on page 772 in the Pew Bibles. Um, but Obadiah only makes sense, all right, if we understand something about the doing nature of brothers. See, Obadiah was written largely to the Edomites, okay? Not Israel, not Judah, but the, the, the Edomites. And the Edomites were the descendants of Esau, whose brother was Jacob, Okay, so if we, if we rewind biblical history just a, a little bit back to Abraham, you'll remember that Abraham maybe had a son whose name was Isaac. Isaac married a woman named Rebekah who struggled with infertility until Isaac prayed in Genesis 25, 21. God answered his prayer and she got pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. And, and here's what God said to Rebekah before these twins were even born. He said, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, the older brother was Esau. He came out first. He came out red and hairy. Uh, The younger was Jacob. He came out second. He came out sneaky and wily. And and there was always tension between them. Esau was a hunter. Jacob was a homebody. Okay, um, Esau was daddy's favorite. Now, I know we're not supposed to have favorites as parents, but nobody told, nobody told Jacob and Rebecca that, so they did. Esau was daddy's favorite, and Genesis 25, 28 tells us that Jacob was mama's boy. Okay? Now, if you know the story, uh, eventually, eventually these two young boys grow up into men. 
Um, Jacob, though he was the younger, schemes Esau out of the eldest son blessing. And eventually we read in Genesis 36, okay, these are the generations of Esau. And the Bible even helps us here. It puts in, in parentheses, that is Edom. It's, it's, the Bible is telling us that Esau is Edom. The Edomites are the descendants of brother Esau. Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. And so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau, again, it tells us Esau is Edom. Okay, so you've got Jacob and, and Esau. The, the biblical storyline is going to follow, for the most part, Jacob. Right, the, the covenant that God made originally with Abraham that passed to Isaac is passed to Jacob. Eventually, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, and he has all these sons who eventually become the nation of Israel. Eventually, all these brothers end up in, in Egypt right, with the famine. They're enslaved. They multiply into a great nation. God raises up Moses. We have the Exodus. We get the Ten Commandments, the parting of the Red Sea. All these people go into the Promised Land, the conquest, the kings. That's all Jacob's descendants. Meanwhile, in the hill country of Seir, Esau is having kids and grandkids of his own, right? His, he, he's got descendants. They become their own nation, just like God told Rebekah before they were born. And life is marching on for the nation of Edom, too. In fact, Genesis 36 records the generations of the Edomites. And so Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom... The Israelites are the descendants of Jacob. The Edomites are the descendants of his brother Esau. And they remained bitter enemies through most of the Old Testament. Their descendants, that is. For example, uh, the Edomites were the ones, maybe you remember this, in Numbers chapter 20, that refused to let God's people pass through their land on the way to the promised land. That was the Edomites. In 2 Samuel, we see David going out in war against Edom. In 1 Kings 11, uh, Hadad, the Edomite, is raised up as an adversary against King Solomon. It goes on and on, all the way down to the time of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah is writing at a very important point in the history of God's people. Um, if you recall from our intro week to the Minor Prophets, in the year 931 BC, the kingdom is divided, and we end up with God's people divided, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Those are all Jacob's descendants, okay? And in 722, Israel falls to Assyria, and then in 586, the southern kingdom of Judah falls to Babylon. And Obadiah is writing, shortly after Judah has fallen to Babylon at the beginning of the exile. And the message of Obadiah, by and large, is a message of judgment upon the Edomites, Right? The, the, the brother nation for their complicity in and even active involvement with the destruction of God's people, the nation of Judah, at the hands of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Okay, so what we have here is God speaking right through the, the prophet Obadiah, whose name means servant of the Lord. Primarily, God is speaking to the Edomites, pronouncing upon them judgment. Yeah, that's, that's the background. That's the context for the book of Obadiah. And I know that that's a lot, right? Like, it's okay if you don't remember all that. It's okay if most of that is brand new to you today. Um, but this is how the Bible works. You know, we, we read and, and we learn. And, and then we, we come each Sunday and we, we sit, we listen, we learn some more. The Spirit does work in us. It transforms us. And, and more and more, as we're exposed to this, more and more it gets into us. We start to remember the story, start to know all these different pieces. We go home, we read our Bibles, we have questions, we ask, we learn some more. And bit by bit, year by year, we, we grow a little bit more familiar with God's Word. And as that happens, you know, we grow in our understanding Understanding of the scriptures. We start to, to get more out of it, so to say. But none of that means right, that you can't get anything out of Obadiah if you don't know and don't understand all that background and context. There is plenty here for us, no matter how new or familiar you are or aren't with the Bible. And it begins with us asking a question, a real simple one. Why is Obadiah in the Bible? <laughs> all right? 
It's a, it's a reasonable question to ask when you think about it. Obadiah is perhaps the only, bi- the only book in the Bible written primarily to unbelievers. The Edomites, remember, are, are not God's people. They, they were, to use the New Testament term, Gentiles. So why is Obadiah in the Bible? Well, a few reasons, I think. Number one, Obadiah is in the Bible to teach us with specificity that God is God over the nations. He's not just the God of Israel. He's, He's not just Lord over Christians. He's Lord over all. Look with me at Obadiah, verse 1. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her, that's Edom, for battle. So God here has a specific message, (laughs) not for his people Israel or Judah, to be more specific in this case. He has a word for the Edomites. That word is a word of of judgment. He speaks it through the mouth of his prophet Obadiah. God is going to raise up other nations, not his people, to tear down the nation of Edom, also not his people. And it's not an empty threat. It's a prophecy that was fulfilled within about 30 years when Nabonidus, the final Neo-Babylonian king, attacked, defeated, and annexed Edom in the year 553 B.C. That's what history teaches us. And so with this one sweeping opening verse, Obadiah shows us God's sovereignty over it all. He's not just God over his nation. He's God over all nations. And if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this. You know, the God of the Bible never says, only those who call themselves Christians have to answer to me. No, it says there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, including yours, that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over all. He's sovereign over all. His rule is not confined to one people group or one race or one generation or nation. He is Lord over all. Even over those who don't believe in him, even over those who labor against him, even his enemies. His reign, his rule, his lordship is universal. Obadiah teaches us that. The second reason that Obadiah, I think, is in the Bible is to teach us, again, with specificity, that God will judge the enemies of the people of God. God will judge the enemies of the people of God. Or another way to say it, God will execute his divine judgment. He promised it. Way back to Abraham, right? I will bless those who bless you. What's he going to do to those who curse you? Curse them. Obadiah is simply a specific example of God doing exactly what he promised to do to the enemies of the people of God. The Edomites were, they were horrible to Judah. We're going to look at that. They function as enemies to the people of God, and God judges them. He brings down his divine retributive justice to bear on them. They get what they deserve. And if we're honest, that sounds shocking to our modern ears. Um, But perhaps it sounds differently if we listen to how the Apostle Paul states it in the New Testament. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Church, Obadiah is a historical example validating what Paul teaches us in Romans 12. It proves to us that it's true. God will judge the enemies of the people of God. You and I can rest in that. You know, listen, when persecution comes, when, not if, when it comes, we don't have to stockpile weapons and peanut butter. You know, we we don't have to build a militia. We don't have to make sure that we get our guy or our gal into office to avoid it all as if it all is up to us. And it doesn't immediately make us universal pacifists. 
It doesn't mean that we can't operate out of self-defense in any or all circumstances. It, it doesn't mean that we withdraw from political engagement, not as long as we have the privilege of being a part of a democracy. But it does mean, it does mean that we don't freak out if it all goes politically sideways and Christians begin to be persecuted even here in Lincoln, Nebraska. God will judge the enemies of God. Obadiah teaches us that. Now, those two reasons are true and fine, but I actually think there's another reason why Obadiah is in the Bible, and that is to serve as a warning to God's people. To serve as a warning to, to God's people. See, in verses 19 through 21, God talks about restoring the people of God. Right? They're, they're, he's going to bring them back from exile, and he's going to expand their borders. There's hope that is here at the end of the book of, of, of Obadiah. Look at verse 20. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites. Again, the exiles of, of Jerusalem shall possess the cities of the Negev. Now, that sounds great. We love that part. We love hope. You know, I mean, we, we do. We like hope. It's a good thing. Um, but if you're one of God's people um, who have just been attacked by the Babylonians... <laughs> hauled off into exile with the Edomites kicking you in the gut on the way down, you know, and on the way out, you you might be tempted to hear God's words here at the end of the prophecy and and respond, thanks. I mean, there's almost a, a strange sense of divine whiplash we get when we understand the context, isn't there? We have God's people, Judah, judged for their own unfaithfulness. God raises up Babylon to attack them and haul them off into exile. Edom is a co-conspirator here. Even if it would seem that God did not raise them up for the task, they just jumped on the Babylonian bandwagon. But, but here they are, God's people in exile. Edom is being judged, and they're getting a promise of future restoration. Thanks. I mean, why, why do it this way? Why go through all of, all of this? Why have the, the message of Obadiah captured in the scriptures for God's people? Why, doesn't, why not just do it and move on? Why do we need to read about it? Well, I'll tell you why. It's to warn God's people and to warn us of pride. Look, look at verse 1 again. It's here. It says, Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised, talking to Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The pride of your heart, it says has deceived you. That is the preeminent charge against Edom. And it functions as a warning to God's people. Back then, when they would return from exile, and it functions as a a warning right now for you and me. Obadiah actually serves as a warning to any and all who do not repent of pride. And so we should ask, what can we learn from Obadiah about pride? You know, pride is a sneaky sin, very sneaky. It, it is, it's the only thing that every single one of us has and yet not a single one of us wants. There's a riddle for you. You know, it's extremely hard to see in ourselves, but it's really easy to see in other people. And, and when we do, when we do see it in other people, we abhor it, don't we? I mean, it's disgusting. Um, pride is a, is a shape-shifting sin. It's, it's Loki, you know. Um, it's the villain with a thousand faces, uh, it manifests in all kinds of ways, spiritual pride, theological pride, political pride, socioeconomic pride. At some of its extreme worst, it's called ethnocentrism and giving birth to all kinds of forms of racism. We, we can be proud of appearances. Um, we can be proud of possessions or success. It comes out in the workplace. Uh, it comes out in parenting. It, it comes out on the golf course. And it, it comes out at church potlucks. It's everywhere. And C.S. Lewis called it a, a spiritual cancer. Eating up the possibility of love, contentment, and even common sense, he says. 
And we typically associate the pride with the puffed up, you know, the boisterous, the, the narcissist, um, the one who draws attention to himself. But listen, those who are meek struggle with it too. Take people pleasing. You know, you don't have to be puffed up um, and, and boisterous or accused of being a narcissist to be a people pleaser. But why does the people pleaser people please? So that others will like him. So, so others will think well of her. Don't you see, even a subtle, quiet people pleaser is concerned about what people think of them. It's the same root. It's pride. And, and make no mistake, church, God, he hates pride. And that's a strong word, but we can say it because the Bible does. Proverbs 8.13, God's word says, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Hate it. Proverbs 16, verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. That was true from Edom. It was true for God's Old Testament people. And it is true for you and me. And the message of judgment in Obadiah is preeminently about Edom's pride. We should certainly ask, what can we learn from Obadiah about pride? The answer is that we can learn here four signs of pride from Obadiah so we can repent of them. They're, they're in here, four signs of pride that we see in the Edomites if we're careful, and we'll find them in ourselves too. Number one is a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Look at verse three in, in your Bibles. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock... In your lofty dwelling, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. See, the Edomites lived in this mountainous region that was south and east of Judah. Their cities were, were, they were mountain cities that could only be reached by these narrow and winding passages. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was in Colorado, and I was heading out to Vail for this pastor thing, right? And, and if you've ever driven west out of Denver into the Rockies, you see these, I mean, amazing houses. Like, you're like, dude, I want to live there, you know? There was one that looked like a spaceship, and I was like, I'll take that one, you know? Um, but if, you, if you're like me, if you've ever driven that stretch of I-70 west of Denver into the Rockies, you've probably also had the thought, how on earth do you get up there, right? Well, Edom was like that. Uh, but it wasn't just a house here and there. Their, their cities were, were built in and on the mountains. And it created this military strategic advantage. They, they had this impregnable position. And they thought themselves pretty special for it. Who will bring me down to the ground? They said, they said this in their heart. You see that? In verse 3, in, in their heart, they talked this way. In other words, the, the state of their heart was very similar to their geography. They were high and lofty. They were hard. They, they, they were certain and proud. From their perch upon the mountains, they, they could see and survey everything around them, but they couldn't see themselves. Again, at the beginning of verse 3, the, their pride of heart had, what's the word again? Deceived them. I mean, that's the nature of pride, isn't it? It's deceptive. And it led them into having a false sense of security. How? They trusted in it. That's what we do with things that give us a false sense of security. We trust in them. And the false sense of security is a sign of pride. What do you trust in? What gives you a, a false sense of security? Which is almost an impossible question to answer, isn't it? Because the reason that it's a false sense of security is like we can't even see that we're trusting in it to begin with. But ask yourself, who do you compare yourself to? You know, that's what the Edomites were doing. Okay, compared to other nations, we're secure. That's what pride does. It compares itself to others. Compared to other nations, we're secure, they thought. They were soaring like eagles, you know? Nobody can touch us. 
No one would defeat them. Compared to others, they thought they were in a pretty good position. Who do you compare yourself to? And what are the points of comparison that you make? We all do it. How do you do it? To whom do you do it? And it's important to know that we do it from both a lofty position and a lowly one. The lofty person compares herself to others and is, and is pleased. You know, like looking down from Edom at all the other weakling nations susceptible to attack and saying, I'm better than them. I'm better than them. But we do it from the lowly position too. The lowly person compares himself to others and finds himself wanting. Wanting to be more, wanting to know more, have more. The lowly person isn't focused on how awesome he is. He's focused on how unawesome he is. But self is still at the center. Who do you compare yourself to? What are the points of comparison that you make? And if you have trouble answering that, I mean, just hop on your Facebook account. Just, just hop on your, your Instagram for a little bit. God will show you. He, he will show you. And when he does, he's revealing a false sense of security. Either one that you currently have, usually typified by what you post, or one you desperately long to have, usually typified by those posts of others that you linger over or zoom in on. Come back and check it again and see how many people liked it. Read in the comments. You know, a false sense of security is the first sign of pride that we see in Obadiah. The second sign of pride that we see in Obadiah is a brazen trust in our own understanding. A brazen trust in our own understanding. Let's pick up at verse 5. It says, If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they, not have, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They've prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Now, Obadiah here is prophesying of Edom's destruction. He's saying thieves don't take everything. Grape gatherers leave, leave gleanings, but that's not going to be the case with you and your destruction. Edom will be thoroughly plundered with nothing remaining. But there's more. The last line of verse 7 says, you have no understanding. This section here in Obadiah is written in the prophetic, perfect sense, meaning it's as certain as if it's already happened. How Esau has been pillaged. All your allies have driven you to the border. They have prevailed over you. You have no understanding. It's been taken away. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Now listen, in a little bit, we're going to look at verse 15, which is going to tell us of God's poetic justice. But let me just say here that when God takes down the Edomites, when he attacks them because of their pride, he attacks them also at the source of their pride. The wise men are destroyed. Edom is left without understanding. Their brazen trust in their own understanding, their own wisdom. They, they thought they were wise, but listen, they were deceived. How might that be true of you? Where do you find yourself with a brazen trust, a, a presumptuous, unabashed trust in your own understanding? It's hard to see in ourselves, but it's in there. Or let, me, let me ask it this way. <laughs> um, who do you butt heads with? <laughs> let me narrow it down for you. you know, I'm thinking primarily this morning about your brothers and sisters in Christ. Who do you butt heads with? What do you butt heads with them over? What positions do others take that offend you? 
2020 made that a really easy question to answer for us, didn't it? What conversations do you, um, what, what conversation topics do you typically try to avoid? Or, or to ask it another way, because you might be wired differently, uh, which conversation topics do you really like to get into? <laughs> who, if you could, who would you force to think like you do? And on what subject matter? Who do you think, excuse my language, kids in the room, but who do you think is stupid? And why? Listen to the word of God this morning, church. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 12, 15. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Isaiah 5, 21. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 3, 7. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. James 4, 6. Second sign of pride that we see in Obadiah is a brazen trust in your own understanding. There's two more. We'll go quicker on these. Number three, celebrating the downfall of others. Look at verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Obadiah is saying, you were there. When the Babylonians attacked Judah and carried her away into exile, you were there. You were like them. You were complicit. And and then he goes on in verse 12 and he says, but do not gloat over the day of your brother. Remember, this is your your brother. Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Listen, gloating, rejoicing, boasting. In verse 16, there's even a reference to drinking and celebration over the misfortune, the downfall of Judah. Edom is celebrating the downfall of his brother. Now, we don't do that, do we? Or do we? <laughs> you think of a time where you smiled a little bit in your heart when a coworker missed a deadline, made you look just a little bit better? When a competitor botched it and you came out ahead? When your friend bombed an exam and you got a better grade, when, when your fellow Christian's candidate lost some election and yours won. The third sign of pride is celebrating the downfall of others, even if you only toast them with the wine glass of your heart. And then number four, the fourth sign of pride that we see in Obadiah is capitalizing off the misfortune of others. Capitalizing off the misfortune of others. The the end of verse 13, it, it tells us that the Edomites showed up in Judah during the Babylonian attack and looted them, their brother. They looted his wealth in the day of calamity. They took advantage of Judah. They exploited them. They stood at the crossroads Verse 14 says, capturing the fleeing refugees, handing them over to the the Babylonians perhaps, or selling them into slavery in their day of distress. Their pride led them into that. To kick them while they were down, to do a flying elbow drop off the top rope onto their brother for the sake, not just for the sake of inflicting pain, for the sake of their own gain. They capitalized off their brother in their brother's greatest time of need. It's pride that says, look out only for number one. It's pride that says, 
One man's loss is another man's gain. It's pride because it says, I'm more important than you. My gain is more important than your pain. This has all kinds of implications. I mean, into societal ethics, but of course, societies are made up only of individuals. And so, ask yourself this morning, are there any ways that you're presently benefiting, presently capitalizing off of the misfortune of others? Remember when we said that Obadiah is in the Bible in part to serve as a warning to God's people against pride? It's a warning against building your own kingdom. That's what pride is, isn't it? It's kingdom building at its heart. It's looking out for number one, which can often be done by capitalizing off the misfortune of others. God says, don't do that. Listen, God's people here in the Old Testament, they are going to return. It's going to take a couple generations, generation and a half or so, but after 70 years of exile, they are restored to the promised land And Obadiah serves as a warning to them that when they do, it serves as a warning to them against the prideful temptation of kingdom building. They're not just to exist for themselves. Looking out for number one, that's, that's, you know, building their own kingdom. All the way back to Abraham, the plan has always been through you, the nations shall be blessed. You are blessed in order to be a blessing to others. That's why we read in the last line of Obadiah, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. It's his kingdom. It's not theirs. He's at the center, not them. It all exists for him and his glory. Obadiah is a warning to returning Israel, and it's a warning to the modern-day church. It's a warning to any and all who will not, who do not repent of pride. What does Jesus say when he shows up on the scene in Mark 1.15? Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. See, Obadiah, I hope you see, has a lot to teach us about pride. We see at least four signs of it here in the text. And listen, if those are the signs of pride, what's the, end? what's the end of it? What's the end of pride? Verse 15 tells us, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. L- listen, this is the divine and poetic justice of God. It's the retributive justice of God. Meaning, God says here, (laughs) pride gets what it deserves. The Lord shall treat Edom as Edom has treated others. The, The proud in heart shall be humbled. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. God says back in verse 2. I will bring you down, declares the Lord in verse 4, to those who saw themselves as high and lofty. Your false sense of security will be shown to be utterly insecure. Your brazen trust in your own understanding will be stripped away. You will have no wisdom. You will have no understanding. As you celebrated and capitalized on the downfall and misfortune of Judah, so downfall and misfortune will come upon you, Edom. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is exactly what God does to Edom. Again, 553 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Edom, and all of this was fulfilled. Verse 17 describes Esau, describes Edom that day as stubble, burnt and consumed with no survivor remaining, God's divine justice rolling down like waters. And it teaches us that God is the God over the nations. It teaches us that God will judge the enemies of the people of God. 
but it also serves as a warning to God's people. Verse 16 expands from Edom to talk of the nations. Talks of the nations drinking and swallowing. Another metaphor, it's a metaphor that's often used in the Bible of the coming wrath of God. A day, the day, the day of the Lord, which has both near-term and future fulfillments in God's word, like we learned in Joel, the ultimate of which is when God will return, he will judge everyone, everywhere, at the end of time, in all pride, in everyone, everywhere, across all time, will be exposed. To which we ought to ask, what kills pride then? What kills it? Like, if this is something that God hates, if it's in all of us, and he will one day return and judge everyone for it, what takes it away? Well, we're told. We're told that there's a way of escape, verse 17. Look at it. It says, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. Friends, those who are gathered around God's presence. That's what's going on with Mount Zion there in in verse 17. Those who are taking refuge in him. Those and only those are the ones who will be delivered from the coming wrath on the day of the Lord. And I want you to think about the only way that that is made possible for you and me. See, you and I, what we deserve, we deserve verse 15. That's what we deserve. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Your head. Your own head. The Bible teaches that every single one of us, there there is pride lurking in all of our hearts. And if somehow the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed some of that to you this morning, might I suggest verse (laughs) 3. That the pride of your heart has deceived you. We are all sinful. Edom is a picture of what we deserve. The wages of sin is death. But the Bible also teaches of one who came and stood in our place. The one whom in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That cup that Jesus referred to in the Garden is the same cup referred to in here in Obadiah 16. And if you believe in Jesus and trust in him, it is a cup that he has swallowed for you on your behalf. The cup of God's wrath owed to you for your sin, owed to you for every instance of pride that still dwells inside of you and swells up inside of you. Pride of the past, pride in the present, future pride that you don't even know you're going to have to deal with. He drank the cup so you don't have to. He bore the divine justice that you deserve. See, in Christ, verse 15 transforms. I mean, this is incredible. In in Christ, verse 15 becomes, as you have done, so it was done to Jesus. Your deeds have returned, not on your head, but on his I mean, can you believe that? (laughs) That he who knew no sin, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that he, he became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God, holy, gathered around God's presence in Mount Zion, taking refuge in him, the escape. I mean, this is the gospel, friends. It is good news. And this gospel is the only antidote to pride. It's the gospel that preaches to us that Jesus, the Lord God himself, high and lofty and holy, he humbled himself. Paul says in Philippians that though he was in the form of God, I mean, if there's something to be proud of, it's that. You know, being made in the the form of of God. That's that's something to be proud about, I think. Um, But he didn't count, Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be held on simply for his own advantage. No, instead, he emptied himself, 
taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself by becoming obedient all the way to the cross where he bled and died for you. Your deeds were placed on his head. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Church, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. Jesus Christ is exhibit A. And this is what Obadiah is about. Because this is what the Bible is about. This is what the gospel is about. The gospel says, listen, the gospel says, you are way more prideful than you think you are. But it also says, in Christ, you are way more loved and forgiven than you ever dreamed imaginable. What kills pride? The gospel. And not in a one and done kind of way. We don't just accept Jesus into our lives and pride goes away forever. I sure wish it did, don't you? My life would be a lot easier if it did. So would yours. My job would be a lot easier if it did. So would yours. But there's still pride in me. There's still pride in you. And it is deceptive. And what kills it, the only thing that truly kills it, is the gospel. Multiple exposures to the gospel over and over and over and over again. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. And conversely, humility grows and flourishes in the atmosphere of the gospel. Let's bring our pride before the Lord this morning. Let's expose it to the gospel. Let's apply the gospel in the here and now to the here and now pride in your hearts. Now I'm just going to operate out of the assumption that the, that the Spirit has revealed at least a, a modicum of, of, of pride in you this morning. What do we do with that? Here's what we do. We take it to the Lord in prayer. We name it. Father, there's pride in my heart. We name it with specificity. I've been finding perhaps a false sense of security in fill in the blank. In comparison, I've been comparing myself to fill in the blank. Trusting in my own understanding. Maybe even viewing someone else as stupid. Wallowing in self-pity. Another form of pride. My unrecognized self-abscribed that nobody else seems to see. We celebrating the downfall of others. Capitalizing even off of their misfortune. Building my kingdom. Lord, we come now before you. In specific ways with specific prides in our hearts. We come now unafraid because of Jesus and name it. Just confess it as sin. Secondly, Lord, we, we admit that we can't kill it on our own. And so we confess our inability knowing that the, the prideful self cannot kill pride in itself. Doing so would only make us more proud. And so we appeal to you, Jesus. Perhaps for the very first time today, we appeal to you for the forgiveness of our sins. We run to you and cling to the cross so that we don't get what we deserve. But instead, you take it on for us. For those of us that are Christians, that that work has already been completed. And we know that the, the gifts of salvation are already ours. Forgiveness, freedom, joy. The, the promise that 
you who began a good work in us will see it through to completion. Holy Spirit, remind us there's no penance to pay. We, we don't have to wait around until we feel guilty enough to come to you. Penance was all paid at Calvary. That doesn't mean there aren't earthly consequences for our sin. There are, and so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd give us courage and endurance to face them. But the eternal consequences have all been paid. And so as those already clothed in the righteousness of Christ, something we didn't do, but you did it for us, we come to you humbly now in this moment, moment by moment, lifting empty hands in faith to receive your good gifts that are already ours in Christ. Humble us, Lord, as we rest in what is already ours. Forgiveness, even from pride. Freedom from comparison. An identity that doesn't have to be built on the backs of anyone but Christ. Freedom from always having to be right. Freedom from having to find false sources of security. We are secure in you. We don't need to be recognized as great. You've recognized us as great. We don't need the approval of others. You have approved us in Christ. And in him, no matter what comes our way, we have everything we truly need. And so thank you for Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.